And <clears throat> I have to comment. It is, first of all, it's great to be inside since it's raining. That's a good thing. <clears throat> but how great it is to see your face. Um, I told Nanette after the first time I preached outside, it was like preaching to those cardboard cutouts at an athletic event. <clears throat> I had no idea what your response was. And, you know, while it can be frightening sometimes to see your response to what I say, um, it's better than seeing a cardboard cutout. Um, so I'm really excited. You know, I couldn't tell if you were angry or bored or asleep. Well, I could tell that. But um, other than that, you know, so it's great. Now we're coming to our last sermon in the series on Hebrews. And, of course, as many of you recognize, we actually haven't finished the whole book. We haven't finished the whole letter. So maybe this week, when you get a chance, you should read the last half of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13. And do that while this study and this this understanding of the rest of the book is in mind. And we have covered some really incredible things in this study, haven't we? I mean, we started with a comprehensive Christology. We talked about the hypostatic union, the perseverance of the saints, Jesus as high priest, God the great promise maker, Melchizedek, suzerain covenants, the sacrifice of Jesus, confession, and community. Wow, that has been some really deep theology. It's not been easy stuff. And of course, we have repeatedly reminded ourselves that this letter was written to a group of relatively new believers who were formerly Jews, and this letter was written to a group of people who were being harassed and persecuted. They were being implored by their families in their community to turn away from Jesus and return to their former lives in Judaism. Their lives were not easy, and the writer wanted them to keep on keeping on. In other words, while Hebrews is deep theology, it is also intensely pastoral. It is the words of a writer who wants to inform and educate, yes, but most importantly, it is the words of a writer who wants to comfort and encourage his people. And I want you to see this connection. Deep theology is not an intellectual endeavor. It is deeply pastoral. In fact, it is not possible to pastor deeply, to shepherd the people of God properly without deep theology, without helping the people of God learn the deep and sometimes difficult things of God. In my decades in the church, and I get to measure those in decades, a lot more than, more than you can imagine. In my decades in the church, I've sometimes seen people shy away from deep theology preferring a more shallow approach to understanding God and his ways and man and his problems, but that nearly always ends up in more shallowness. Shallow pastoring, shallow belief, and most importantly, shallow perseverance. Because avoiding deep theology means missing the answers to the really difficult issues that we confront in all of our lives. And today is not going to be any different, of course. Because we're going to see discipline is not punishment. And suffering is necessary for growth. Let's pray. Lord, these are deep things that we have to think about. And, and so we need your spirit to illumine us and um, use my words to uh, feed your people. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. I did want to comment, and I meant to comment at the beginning, that if you had just paid attention to the texts of the songs and to Kendra's comment, and Sabrina's prayer, you can go ahead and go to sleep, okay? Because you've really caught it all, okay? Um, because what I'm going to talk about today is going to sound a little more um, 
I don't know. I don't know what it's going to sound. Who knows what it's going to sound like? Uh, but they've already hit the high points. So you just remember those things and, and, and try to keep going. Um, so our passage today, it's really a passage of two metaphors. Um, they're not mixed metaphors, but they're, and there's this important transition that the author makes that we're going to come to. But I think it's helpful to call out these metaphors right here at the beginning. The first metaphor is that of an athlete, probably a runner, but maybe a pentathlete, as I'll talk about in a moment. And we see this mainly in the first three verses. The second metaphor is that of father and child. And wow, isn't it a great day to think about that, to consider this passage, to be able to think deeply about God as our father on this Father's Day. And we're going to see that mainly in 4 through 10. So the first verse says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The author is imploring his readers to lay aside the difficulties and run the race. So why does he want them to do that? One reason is the cloud of witnesses. Who are they? Who is the cloud of witnesses? Well, remember, there's this really important word at the beginning, therefore. And so therefore means you always need to look back. And so if we think back from last week, we heard all about the saints and their faithfulness. So one theory or one idea of who the cloud of witnesses is are are the saints that have gone before us to heaven. Those saints whose acts of faithfulness were described in chapter 11. Some think this refers to other believers in whose midst these believers find themselves living. And so that too could be the cloud of witnesses. Or some think it could even refer to non-believers in whose presence these believers are living and who are watching these converted followers of Jesus to see whether the persecution and the threats that they are receiving is going to drive them away and back into Judaism. And so I suspect our best understanding is that it probably includes all three. We should run the race because people, both those who are alive and those who are now with God, are watching. But there's another reason we should run the race, and that reason is Jesus. Verse 2, he tells them to fix their eyes on Jesus. He reminds them that Jesus endured much, more than they had to to this point and more than they ever would. And he kept on running his race, so they should, in the words of verse 2, not grow weary and lose heart. Moving on to verse 4, he says, You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And there are some differences of opinion about what this exactly means. Especially if we think about it in the context of right after talking about the suffering of Jesus, then it likely meant that they hadn't been tortured physically or killed. They hadn't gone to the point of shedding blood, that is, dying for Jesus. Others, however, also see this reference to an athletic endeavor. The pentathlon, as I was just talking about. The ancient pentathlon included running, javelin, discus, long jump, and wrestling. And the wrestling was the final event, but it was probably a little different than our wrestling today. The combatants' hands had this hard leather on them. So it might have contained a little bit of boxing-type activities and likely would have brought out blood. And so regardless of whether this is a single or a double reference, the writer is telling his readers that despite their struggles... They have not been killed or left bleeding flat on the mat at the end of the match. So in these four verses, life is compared to an intense athletic endeavor. It is a marathon, but it is more than a marathon. It is an agonizing struggle. 
life often seems like it is one difficult situation after another. And if the writer stopped here, he would simply be saying, life is hard. Get over it. Keep going. That would not be very comforting, would it? But he quickly and deftly turns to another metaphor, that of father and child. And he reassures his readers that these struggles are all part of God's plan to help them grow and become the people he has called them to be. So let's look at this a bit further. In verses 5 and 6, he, he paraphrases Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. So I'm going to read Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. The writer then is making the case that when things get difficult, at least one reason they are difficult is because, excuse me, is because God is disciplining us. And he disciplines us because he delights in us. In verses 7 and 8 in Hebrews, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if things are not difficult for you at some point in time, if you're not being disciplined at some point in your life, are you sure you're a follower of Jesus? He also connects their experience as human children, those who have been disciplined by their fathers. And just as a human father disciplines his human children for good, so the heavenly father disciplines his children for their good. And, of course, he seems to recognize that which we all recognize and which has been stated already this morning, that our human fathers were imperfect at this. They disciplined us for a short time, it says in verse 10, as seemed best for them. Not perfectly. So I want to pause here and look at this word discipline. Because I'm not so sure it means what you think it means. The Greek word is pedeia. Or that's close. I'm not Greek, so excuse me if you're Greek. But it's the Greek word from which we get the term pediatrics. So what's a pediatrician? He's a person concerned about the health and welfare of a child. In ancient Greece and in the subsequent Greco-Roman world, pedia was really a description of the entire rearing and education of an ideal member of the community. It involved education about various subjects, yes, kind of where we get the word pedagogy in a little bit to, to some degree. It involved education about various subjects, yes, but it also focused on socialization of children and youth. Physical training was important as well. And the goal was to have someone who, as they grow, possessed the intellectual, moral, and physical capabilities to be a well-rounded member of society. Padilla, then, was this all-encompassing term for the whole process of bringing up children and youth. That's not exactly the image we get when we think about discipline, is it? In fact, if, we look in this, if you look in the dictionary for the definition of discipline, it says the practice of training people to obey rules or a code of behavior. That sounds a little bit like pedia. Using punishment to correct disobedience. Now, I'm sure pedia sometimes included punishment in ancient Greece. I'm sure it did. But when we hear the word discipline, I think our minds go immediately and probably mainly 
to the idea of punishment, to the idea of receiving or inflicting discomfort and pain. We think of that, fa- that famous maxim, spare the rod and spoil the child. Which in and of itself is this really interesting paraphrase of another proverb, 1324, which says, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. That Hebrew word there for discipline is most commonly actually translated in the Old Testament as instruction or correction, not chastisement. So I'm not really sure that spare the rod and spoil the child is really a very useful paraphrase of that proverb anyway. But in any event, the idea of painful punishment, I think, is inherent in our modern use of the term discipline. And we hear that word discipline, we think punishment. But pedia, the word translated discipline here, is much more. And it should be regarded as correction, guidance, and sometimes punishment. But not just punishment. Let's return to verse 10. For they, our human fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. The reason that God disciplines us is for our good. Now let's step way back. Step way back and ask a really big picture question. What in the world is it that God is doing with us as we live out our lives after we become followers of Jesus? Right? I mean, it's not like you become a follower of Jesus. He says, good, I'll meet you at the end. You'll make it to heaven. See ya. No, we're always doing something here. And so our answer here at Hope Chapel is, is that we're here for the flourishing of the city. That we seek to join God in the spiritual, social, and cultural renewal of the city. And some might think that spiritual renewal is proclaiming Jesus so that others become followers of Jesus. And it is that. But it is not just that. Spiritual renewal includes the followers of Jesus becoming more like Jesus. That process we call theologically sanctification, even if I can't say it, that's what we call it, sanctification, the definition of which is growing in holiness. So why does God want us to grow in holiness? We at least see part of the answer in the rest of our passage today, just briefly to say, verse 11, to receive the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Verse 14, to pursue peace with all men and ultimately to see the Lord. Verse 15, to not miss the grace of God and to prevent the root of bitterness from springing up. And verse 16, to avoid immorality and godlessness. It is for these things, these good things, that God disciplines us. But of course, Hebrews 12, 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. That's an understatement, right? That's an understatement. For those of us who were over in this corner before, during the prayer, I don't know how far back you could hear it, but there was a young child who was not happy about being in the nursery. And I couldn't help but think, doesn't that sound like us when we're being disciplined, right? It's for the good of the child, right? We've got to learn these things. It's kind of how we are. Think back to those times that you were disciplined by your parents or those times you disciplined your children. Remember those times when there's been weeping, wailing, maybe not gnashing of teeth, but weeping and wailing. What happened then? Well, you learned, and you kind of moved on. All right? For the moment, he says, all discipline for the moment 
seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. And indeed, discipline is sorrowful, often theatrically so, but it is only for the moment. And then our lives go on. And so it is with discipline that we will experience with God. So as we think about this passage overall, I want to be sure we understand the two things I said at the beginning. Discipline is not punishment. And suffering is needed for growth. Discipline is not punishment. What do I mean by that? You may think that I've already kind of shown that in discussing the difference between pedia and our modern understanding of discipline. And you would partially be right about that, that I have shown it to some degree. But I want to dive deeper than that. So let me do this by asking you a question. Does God punish you for your sins? Does God punish you for your sins? And I will tell you that what I think the answer is, is no and yes. What do I mean by that? Well, we got to start by thinking about what sin is. Sin is not a mistake. It's not an error. It's not a misjudgment. It's not even just a wrong. Sin is an affront to our God who is holy and just beyond our imagination. And when we sin, whether that is lying or stealing or coveting or sexual sin, something we call a big sin or something we call a small sin, those are our, those are our classifications, by the way, not God's. And he is justly, and, and he is justly angry with sin. All right? God is angry with sin. And back in chapter 10, we read that what happens when a holy and just God is angry with sin? Verse, verse 30 in chapter 10, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31 is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So when God is offended and affronted by our sin, he is just to seek. Indeed, he must seek retribution. Punishment as payment. Punishment as vengeance for the wrong done to him in his created world. I don't think we think about sin that way very much. Okay? We don't consider it and comprehend the disastrous nature and consequences of our sin. We just think they're wrong. Now, of course, for those of us who follow Jesus, who have cast ourselves to the foot of the cross, we know that our punishment has been attributed to Jesus at the cross, and his righteousness has become attributed to us, and praise God. So God does not, and indeed cannot, punish a follower of Jesus for their sins not in the sense of retribution. Were he to do that, he would be unjust, as he would be punishing the same sin twice, and God cannot do that. Jesus has borne that punishment. So Paul tells us in Romans 3.26 that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Excuse me for a minute. One problem when you're using your computer is funny things all of a sudden appear. Excuse me for a second. There we go. All right. Now, sorry. This whole passage today, though, is about God disciplining us. And that disciplining does include, from time to time, what surely feels like punishment. Does this mean that Paul is wrong and God is really unjust? No, of course not. So let's think about this in human terms. What is the motivation for a parent disciplining a child? 
We hoped as children and we hope as parents that the motivation was the welfare of the child. But that was and is not always true, is it? We have to admit, sometimes the discipline outweighed the offense, usually happening when the parent was offended or felt disrespected by the child's behavior. The result is not punishment as discipline by a parent, human parent to a child, but punishment or discipline as retribution. And the result of that can be devastating for both the parent and the child. And how humbling is that, as I recall the upbringing of my own children. But God is not like man. God is the perfect father. There is no retribution in his discipline. The punishment we feel in the discipline that God directs toward us is not God's retribution. It is his loving guidance. Now, it may not feel that way. It is sorrowful, but it is perfect and loving on God's part. It is just the right amount, not too much and not too little. And as difficult as it can be to be disciplined, we need to remember that is part of God that it is part of God's plan to make us holy. There's one other point I would make here. Retributive punishment is specific to the sin. If God is just, then the price Jesus paid and that we would have paid for our offense to God if Jesus hadn't paid it for us is exactly what that sin required. Discipline and the the punishment we may feel from that may be from a specific sin in our lives, but it is more likely simply God's use of consequences of our sin to mold us into the people he wants us to be. I think it tends to be much less specific. So in summary then, no, God does not punish us for our sins in the sense of retribution for offending him. But yes, God does use discipline, which sometimes feels like punishment, to perfectly and lovingly guide us into holiness. Because it seems the only way we learn, the way we learn best, is through suffering. I think most of us who would agree that as followers of Jesus, we don't seem to learn. We don't seem to grow very much in holiness. We don't seem very much to become more like Jesus when things are going well. For example, you would think that someone becoming more well-off would cause them to become more generous. And it sometimes happens, but it usually doesn't. What we usually see is more selfishness, pride, and greed. You would think that when we're sailing along, healthy, with adequate food, good relationships, little strife, little conflict in our lives, that we would take that time to really dig into the Bible, to really learn the ways of God, to pray more in thankfulness and for others, and to get ready for the hard times. Nope. Doesn't happen, does it? Or at least doesn't happen most of the time for most of us. But I shouldn't expect it to be any different. Let's look back at Hebrews 5, where it says... He, although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience from the things he has suffered. Why do I think it would be different if we're children of God? So Tim Keller points out three really practical aspects of our response to the suffering and disciplining that God brings into our lives that I think are really, really helpful. So let's, let's walk through those real quick. The first is a practical humility. Recognize that you will not necessarily understand everything that is going on in the midst of having problems, of being disciplined or suffering. 
it will feel a little bit like as a child, as, as it feels to a child being disciplined by a parent, that the discipline is too much for too long and is unfair. It will sometimes feel like it's too much to bear. So what should your response be? Well, again, try not to get too specific. Don't try to figure out, you know, am I suffering this because of that? You know, it may be, but you're probably never going to know. But most importantly, don't despair. Remember, this is your heavenly Father disciplining you for your good and your growth, and that will result if you do the right things. Keller points out an interesting thing. Despair is for arrogant people who think they know everything about a situation. Never really thought about that, you know? I mean, we think we know everything about it, and it's terrible, and so we despair. We don't know everything at all. We shouldn't despair. Remember that God is your loving Father. We don't know the why and the wherefore. The second is practical endurance. Look in verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. Endure here means to remain, to withstand. It literally means to stand still, which is kind of odd. But to put it another way, don't retreat. Don't go backwards. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't quit praying. Don't quit helping others. Don't quit your devotions and worship. Keep at the tasks of the Christian life during times of discipline. Think about exercise. When does it do you the most good during your exercise? Right when it's the hardest. Right? If you quit exercising right when it gets hard, you will not get very much benefit. I ride a bike. I have this great exercise bike at home. It's on a computer program called Zwift. And sometimes I go, I don't like this very much. And I get to that point, I say, well, if I'm going to do myself any good, I just got to push. Now, I'm an old guy, so I got to not push too hard. I got to be a little careful. But, but you know that idea. If you quit exercising right when it gets hard, you're not going to get any benefit. So if you quit doing the tasks of a child of God, of a believer, in the midst of the discipline, you're going to grow in resentment and anger. And you will not grow in holiness. Frankly, in times of discipline and suffering, it is not only not the time to quit the tasks of the Christian life, it is time to double down on them. We have to be humble and not arrogant. We have to endure and not quit or retreat. And the third, he says, is practical evaluation. When things get hard, we want to blame other people. We want to analyze what others are doing that got me into this situation. Wondering, how did I get into this thing anyway? What, what sin is it that led to this? And, you know, we might conclude, if we're, not, if we're not right about that, that things aren't fair. That the difficulties I face are not really my fault or outweigh the sin that I think I'm being disciplined for. But be careful, because what you should really be doing in the midst of difficulties and discipline is looking inside. What is God trying to do with you and what is he trying to do in your life? We've already looked through a few of these passages in Hebrews today. Peaceful fruit of righteousness, pursue peace, see the Lord, not miss the grace of God, prevent the root of bitterness. But just in case you want a really comprehensive God to help you consider what God may be seeking to work on in your life, consider Galatians 5. Could it be that God is trying to help You rid yourself of the deeds of the flesh. You'll find those in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. 
immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy. I don't like the next one. Outbursts of anger. Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this. And could it be that God is trying to help you grow in the fruits of the Spirit? Those are found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And in what I think is my favorite passage in all the Bible, against such things there is no law. Doesn't matter. Those are always good things. Look internally at your heart, not externally at your circumstances. What is it about me that I should learn during this time of suffering and discipline? So these are the practical steps of learning obedience or holiness through suffering that we have to grasp. And and really, we have to expect this to happen. We have to embrace it. Humility, endurance, and proper evaluation. And this is going to lead to the holiness that God is seeking for us, his children, as we are disciplined, and as we suffer. Okay, we're turning for home. There may be one other question that's nagging you a little bit. It's a big one. Does all this discussion of discipline and suffering, whether for our sin or the sin of others, or just the suffering that can occur in life, does all this mean that God is willing evil upon us just so that we will learn? And of course, the answer is no. God is not the author of evil. Evil exists, and he does allow it to exist, but he is not the author of evil. I don't understand exactly how that is true, but it's what the Bible teaches, so it's true. Why does evil exist? That's a big question, and I'll answer it quickly one way. Even the presence of evil in the world ultimately does and will bring glory to God. And that's the only final answer. And for now, he perfectly uses that sin and evil that we do that causes our suffering, the evil that others do that results in suffering for us, and the suffering inherent in a fallen world to lovingly discipline us, to perfectly teach us, and to make us more holy, to make us more like Jesus. And so we come to the end of our study of Hebrews. Our study of the supremacy of Christ. Again, I would encourage you this week to read the last chapter and a half. We have seen over and over again how Jesus is supreme over all other things in heaven and on earth that would vie for our worship. And today, it has certainly not been different. Jesus took the retributive punishment of God being forsaken by God on the cross, brutally and horrifically losing for a time his relationship with God as son so that we could become children of God despite our sin and so that he could and he would lovingly discipline us to enable us to grow in holiness. And may it be so in all of our lives. Christ is supreme. Amen.